Well, as you likely know, we're in a series in the book of Romans, and we've been in the first chapters of Romans. We're today in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 31, and I encourage you to turn there, and we'll come to that text uh, shortly. And, and in Romans, it's really getting at what we just saw at in the video in, in many ways, um, this truth of the reality of our sin and the also reality, the more powerful reality of God's grace. And in that video and in, in the Romans text that we've been looking at and that we'll continue to look at today, it's, it's summed up well in this quote by Tim Keller, and I've shared this before. I, I think this quote, quote captures it so well. And, and Tim Keller says, The gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And you know, we have a very real enemy called Satan who would like us to view our sin on either of the extremes, and that would quite be okay with the enemy. On the one hand, to view our sins in such a way that we, we kind of dismiss them, and we say, no, 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 I, I'm a good person, like I'm, I'm a good person, you know, like there's nothing wrong with me, and we sort of minimize. Or to go to the other extreme, and we only view our sin, and all we feel is condemnation and shame and we don't realize the goodness of God and the grace of the gospel that frees us from that. And again, the reality is the enemy is okay with either extreme because either one sets us down a path of immobilization and not understanding what God truly has for us. And so in our text today, Paul returns to this most succinct and powerful way of explaining the good news of the gospel in the gift of grace. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago and we started in chapter 1, the familiar verses in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, you may want to just look there for a minute where Paul says this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then it's almost like Paul goes on this detour. It's like Paul goes on this, this journey and he, he sort of backs up from that statement in the first chapter where he is talking about this amazing gift of grace. And it's almost like he realized, okay, but people, you won't understand this gift of grace until you actually understand your need for it. And then at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 in Romans, Paul is going through in intense and, and painful detail the sin of our lives, the reality of that in our lives, and why this gospel of grace is such good news. And then we read in chapter 3, verse uh, 10 to 18, where he sum, sums it up in many ways, and he says things like this. He says, there's no one who is righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. And on and on and on. I mean, it's a pretty dark picture that Paul is painting as he comes to the end of chapter 3. Then he says in verse 20 of that chapter, he says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. Conscious of our sin. So in other words, Paul has gone on this detour, this very intentional detour, which has shown us the problem or the bad news. And now he comes back again to the solution 
or the incredible good news of the gospel, which is this gift of grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Then we look at verse 21 of chapter 3. And he starts out in that text and he says these two words. He says, but now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Let me just pause for a minute on those two words, but now. Pastor and preacher and writer Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's uh, a British preacher, says, there are no more wonderful words in all of Scripture, maybe, than these two words, but now. But now. And if you look at Scripture, and, and I could give you all kinds of text after text after text that have those two words in them, where there is this transition where the author, the writer of whatever book it is, is explaining, here is where you have been, but now, because of what God has done. In First Peter, Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In Ephesians, Paul says, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light of the Lord, so live as people of the light. In Colossians, once you were far from God, but now you have been brought near. And so there's these incredible words, but now. And Paul here in in this book in in Romans, in in chapter 3, he makes this transition now in verse 21 to these words, but now. He's gone on this detour. He's gone on this explanation. He's taught this understanding. And he says, but now, you need to hear this, people. You need to really get this good news of the gospel. It's called Jesus. It's the gift of grace because of what God has done through Jesus. You know, Martin Luther, he claimed that this text that we see that we're coming to and focusing on here today is the absolute chief point or the centerpiece of Romans. Even, in fact, the whole Bible is what he claimed. And it definitely sums up so much of what we would articulate as the gospel, of the good news of the gospel. And even as we have expanded and talked about, well, what is the gospel story? And we've, we've done a couple of times a sermon series called The Gospel Story where we look at it in the broadest sense from Genesis to Revelation where we have these different chapters of this story, that there is creation, that there is brokenness and sin, that there is the promise that God gives Abraham, there is the law, there is rebellion, then there is grace, and then there's the spirit in the church, and then finally eternity. And so we understand this gospel story as as a broad story, this whole story of God, but at the center of this story is this piece of grace, this chapter of grace, this reality and this truth of the gospel of grace The birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. We see the implications of this grace here in our text today. In Romans 21 verse 24. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, by Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, God has shown a way. God is a God who pursues us. God is a God who has made us right with him apart from the law. In other words, you'll never be good enough. You'll never do what it takes to be good enough to be made right in God's sight by your own effort, by your own merit, even to following the law. And as he's speaking to the Jews in that context in Rome, 
they would have understood what he was talking about, that that will not earn your salvation. You know, last weekend we, we had a focus on our missions festival and just some great times of teaching and learning and worship and prayer. And we talked about this truth that for so many faiths, including Islam, that, that there is such a focus on works and earning salvation. Even to the point in the extreme sense of shedding blood for it. But here's the amazing truth of the gospel of Jesus. Is that God himself and Jesus Christ shed his blood so that we may be made right with him. This is the gift of grace. There's a lot of big words that come out in this text in Romans chapter 3, 21 to 31. And uh, Paul talks about redemption in verse 24. He talks about this redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, a word that means to buy back. In, in those days, they would have understood it as somebody who was uh, a slave and how they were redeemed as a slave and they were purchased in terms of their freedom. And, I mean, could you imagine the sense of freedom that somebody who has lived their whole life in slavery and now somebody actually paid for them to be free? And in that context, they would have understood what that was about. And so that word redemption carries some of that understanding that, that what Christ has done is that he has purchased our freedom. And then we continue reading in verse 25 and 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Redemption, atonement, righteousness, justified. All of these theological terms, these theological concepts that, that mean so much in terms of this gospel of grace are, are contained right here in these few verses. That we are justified. As some say, just as if we hadn't sinned. That we are acquitted. It's like a courtroom term that, that means that you are acquitted, that you are no longer, that you are not guilty. You are completely innocent, declared forgiven based on the work of Jesus on the cross. Atonement, that there is this atonement that was done, that we are at one with Jesus, at one with God, that we are reconciled with God. And it refers to this, this mercy seat that these people, again, the Jewish people would have understood. The Ark of the Covenant had this mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, this portable tent of meeting of God that they went as they wandered in the wilderness. And there was this mercy seat there that paid for the sins where the sins of the people were paid for. You know, I've been, in my own reading, in a, a Bible uh, year reading plan, I've been in Leviticus, interestingly, which connects so much into these texts that we're talking about today and reading through in these last weeks of Le Leviticus 14 and 15 and 16. Interesting, challenging kind of text, but reminding me again of all of the rules that were there in this law of Moses. And as these people lived in the wilderness and all these things that had to happen and the role that the priests played in those days. And I remember reading them thinking, okay, I'm thankful that I don't have to play that role in the same way. As people would come to the priest with skin disease, and they would have to look at the skin disease and see, is it fully turned white or not, and then send them away and sort of do an analogy. I'm glad you doctors and nurses and medical people take care of that now, and we don't have to do that anymore. So you can take your skin disease to them, right? 
Or else you had to be experts in mold because mold and mildew would grow on certain uh, pieces of clothing or else in your tent. And so the, the priest would have to go and assess this mold and, and make an assessment and, and, and do these different uh, sacrifices in order to make it uh, pure again. And, and then there was the, the, um, the other things like bodily discharges, which we won't even mention, that had to be assessed or something. And then there's this purification that happened. I mean, you go into the details, go into Leviticus, and you get into the details of stuff of this law of Moses and how these people were called to live. And you go, what is that? But then as part of this, there was this mercy seat, this seat of atonement at the tabernacle by the Ark of the Covenant. And in Leviticus 17, it talks about this and how the people of God would have their sins forgiven on that seat of atonement. And it was a different time when when sacrifices were given for the sins of the people, and that's where God took care of the sins of the people. And God said to Moses, you know, you need to tell your brother Aaron, who is the priest, not to just come into the Holy of Holies at any given time, because if I'm there as in the cloud and he comes in, that he will die. This is a holy God who is in the Holy of Holies. And so he puts these practices and rituals in place and the ways to do certain things. And what they were to do is they were, there was a sacrifice of a bull, but there was also two goats that were there. And they would cast lots at this time. And one would be sacrificed and the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, the seat of atonement for the sins of the people. And the other goat would be what was known as a scapegoat. And actually the priest would put his hand on the head of the goat, and would actually lay the sins of the people of Israel on this goat. And then this goat was, was sent off into the wilderness to carry the sins away of the people of Israel. And so you have these pictures in the minds of people of how they would deal with the sin of people at that time. And how now Jesus is the one who takes care of that for us. That the blood of Jesus has been sprinkled on this seed of atonement. That Jesus is also our scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world and takes them away. And in many ways, we are sort of like that goat that gets to be freed. We don't, aren't no longer needing the sacrifice because Jesus has done that for us. And, and we get to be set free, not with the sins of our, the world or even our own sins, but actually free because of what Jesus has done. And then in Leviticus 16, verse 34, it says this. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So again, this is the background. This is the understanding that these Jewish people would have understood deeply. And and as Paul is writing to this church in Rome, it's, it's Jewish people and also Gentile people. But the Jewish people would have understood this deeply and, and had this image and this picture in this mind and this understanding that Jesus is the sacrifice, that Jesus is the scapegoat, and that we are set free. There's this word forbearance there. That God held back, that by his grace he didn't punish those who sinned in past times as he looked ahead and he included them in what he was going to do in the present time. A once and for all sacrifice for all people of all times. And all we have to do is to recognize and to receive this gift of grace, repent of our sins, and to understand the grace of God by faith. And then Paul continues in verse 27 to the end, and he says, where then is boasting? In other words, what, what role does boasting play in this in terms of bragging about what you've done? He says, it is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. 
For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Paul is saying here that absolutely nobody can boast. When it comes to this gift of grace and this good news of the gospel, he says there's nothing that you can do to earn it. That's the point. There's absolutely nothing that you can do to earn it. You can't boast about what you've done to be made right with God. But here's the reality. I think for many people, even many of us who've grown up in the church, we, we subtly, kind of subconsciously, still feel that we've got to earn it. We've got to work hard. We've got to make ourselves right before God. We've got to make sure we have our act together before we come to church. We've got to, you know, sort of have things in order before we come before God in any way to worship. What Paul is saying is that, no, you don't have to. Christ has done it for you. You are made right with God because of what he has done. But yet so many of us allow this works righteousness to creep into our lives in one way or another, more than we would like to admit. It creeps into my life more than I like to admit. It creeps into my preaching more than I like to admit. We need to remind ourselves of this incredible grace of God. You know, one of the ways that we can sometimes see it or we feel it is by comparison. And we, we compare ourselves to others and partly because we kind of go, well, okay, I'm not that bad. Like, I'm not a bad person. And, you know, you might see people on the video and go, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not like that bad, so I'm okay. As soon as we say that, we're, we're saying, well, there's actually something that we can do then to earn our salvation. And so how is it that we compare? And, and oftentimes when we do compare, we, we often compare our intentions with other people's actions, Right? So we know what our intentions are, but we compare those with their actions. Or we, we compare our good and our best with their bad or their worst. And so whenever we go into that posture of comparison, we're kind of saying we think we can earn our way before God to be made right. And yet we, if we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, we see right away that there's absolutely nowhere to go. You know, in the video, just like for many people, we might subtly believe that, well, it's just good people that go to heaven. And yet, nowhere in Scripture does it ever teach that. Nowhere. Jesus proved that wrong many times, but we see that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where, where Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says in verse 20, as he's, he's teaching about the fulfillment of the law and this law of Moses, and he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're going, wow. The Jewish people listening to that would have been astounded not know what to do with that because they knew that the Pharisees were the ultimate do-gooders. They memorized the law. They kept all the commandments. They added, in fact, hundreds more just to make sure. I mean, they were the ultimate rule makers and fence builders you know just to make sure that you don't cross a line and jesus says no 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 you'd have to even exceed their faith i mean exceed that the people would just sort of throw up their hands and go that's impossible and jesus is like yeah that's the point that's the point paul he says in another 
letter he wrote to the Philippians, he says, you know what, if anybody can boast, I could boast. Paul, after all, was one of those Pharisees. He says in in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, he says, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could, indeed, if others have reasons for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight years old, eight days old, sorry. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. And you know, I once thought these things were so valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. And you know, Paul is saying, we can't earn it. We can't boast about it. There's nothing to boast about other than Jesus. We think that God is a fair God and he'll give us what we deserve, but be thankful that he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. In that text that Kevin read at the start of the service in Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from your own doing, not from yourself, so that no one can boast. Because you see, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. That's what Paul is teaching here. We know even Jesus, when he was on the cross and he was hanging there between the two thieves, there was the one thief on the cross who recognized Jesus' innocence and he also recognized his own sin. And he rebuked the other criminal and he says, we're getting what we deserve, but this man is innocent. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me. And this anonymous bandit had absolutely no good works to set before God as evidence of his goodness. None. And his life ended the way he lived it in gruesome violence. And yet to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's grace. That is an amazing gift of grace. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus took what we deserve so that we could be the ones set free. The penalty has been paid. God laid aside the fairness piece and opted instead for grace and mercy. Because you see, we need a savior and we need a a messiah, not a to-do list and not a life coach who helps us live a gooder life, whatever that looks like. You know, this teaching that Paul is doing here in this book of Romans is like new wine in old wineskins that would have just been bursting the wineskins of these Jewish people who would have understood the law of Moses and thought, okay, this is what gets us salvation. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not it. It's this gift of Jesus. And there's nothing you can do to earn it other than receive it, repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and rejoice in this blessing of God. You know, one of my favorite questions, as you probably know, and I ask each one of you this, is, When did you first realize how great God really is? And my guess, and it was for me, it's at that moment when we see the reality of our sin together at the same time and more powerfully with the experience and the evidence and the truth of God's grace. And when you see those two together and God's grace just overwhelms your sin and overwhelms the things that, that kind of haunt you and overwhelm the things that hold you back and you realize the grace of God in Jesus. It's that moment where you see, God, you are so good. I don't deserve this. God, your grace is incredible. Do we see this Jesus? 
Do we truly understand this gift of grace? This God who pursues us more than you will ever, ever know. As Kevin said, we have many opportunities to respond. How will we respond to God's grace? What are the implications of God's grace? Would you stand with me also as I lead us in a time of prayer and that we would just pray and give thanks for this grace of God. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are one who pursues us and that you have paid the price for us. And God, I pray for anyone here who's feeling overwhelmed with condemnation and shame, that your grace and that your mercy would just flood over them and that you would overwhelm them. And Lord, sometimes we we think of grace as just maybe a mist or just sort of like a handspring and we just sort of miss this grace on people. And yet it is like the song that we sung earlier today. It is this flood, this overwhelming flood of water that overwhelms us. And God, I pray that for each one here that, that feels the need for that, that they would experience and know by the blood of Jesus that we have that grace available for us, that we are free, that we are completely set free. God, forgive us for our sins. They're real. Forgive us for the the fact that often we underplay them, we downplay them, we don't think they're a big deal. We compare ourselves and we think, well, I'm a good person. And yet, Lord, the reality is is that we need your grace more than we ever recognize. So, Lord Jesus, would you encourage each one here today. May we know and sense the love of Christ and this gift of grace that you have given us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.